Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he, disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we look at your word today and as we look at Jesus' joy in the mission and Jesus' joy in being able to fulfill the promises of the Father, to save his people, to gather for himself a bride that he can present to the Father a bride who gets to share in his glory and his joy and who is loved eternally by him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Father, as we look at this, I pray that you would move in us, that you'd move in us in such a way that we would find no greater joy than the fact that we are in fellowship with the Father and the Son, that we have the gift, the privilege of eternal joy with you, and Father, I pray that you would also work in us in such a way by your Spirit that we, um, we would be moved to share that with other people. That as a people who were once not your people, as a people who were once those who did not have mercy, Father, we would respond as those who now recognize we have mercy and that we are in fact your people and that we would want to see your gospel go forward to the nations so that many would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible is the story of God and not us. Now, I realize that's an, maybe an obvious kind of statement, but I think a lot of times when we approach the Bible, we're constantly asking uh, uh, the question, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? What do I do with this? Why does that change what I believe? And we come to a question like the question of the Trinity. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Great. How does that apply to me? And we start to make the story predominantly about us. And are we included in the story? For sure. But it's first and preeminently, supremely, the story about God. The story of God who is a Trinitarian God. A Trinitarian God who has eternally been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This means that there is eternal love, eternal joy, and eternal glory within his own being. So he doesn't need creatures for any of this. He isn't lonely. He isn't needy. So why did he create? Because his love compelled him to make creatures who could experience the blessed gift of seeing his glory and finding joy in him and receiving his love. He did it because at the end of the day, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have an outgoing, outward-facing kind of love. They're so in love with one another, and so not in need of anything from anyone else that their love can be then shared. It's outgoing. It's sharing. So they create for the purpose of sharing that extravagant love that exists within the Trinity with us. 
of sharing the joy that exists within the Trinity with us. Let, Let me give you a human analogy of this. What does a father do when his son makes him proud? Some of you are fathers. All of you have had fathers. Hopefully some of your fathers were around. But what does a father do when his son makes him proud? Or, or maybe what does a son do when he's proud of his dad? What does he do? My son um, plays football, and I've brought this up before, and I'm going to bring it up because it helps with the analogy. My son plays football, and he's good at it, right? And he runs touchdowns quite a bit. And every time he runs a touchdown... I, I can't wait to show everyone. <laughs> I video it. I'm like, there's my son, right? I, the first time I started to tear up, actually. I never ran a touchdown, so it was like redemption, right? <laughs> it's like, there he goes. Like, it came from me, right? <laughs> you guys understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I didn't get picked first, but he will be, right? You, you, I guess you guys understand. And so I, I want to show everyone his glory, Look at the glory of my boy. His game is on, his next game is Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Noriega and Old Farm, if you want to come see his glory, right? (laughs) Come watch his glory. You guys get it. I want to show off my boy. Likewise, my son is excited that I'm his dad. He can't wait for me to be his cabin counselor at Hume Lake um, when he goes for science camp in a couple weeks for his school. Um, he, he goes to Christian school, and so they go to Hume Lake for their science camp, and I'm the cabin counselor, and he's all excited. He's, like, he's telling his friends, wait till you hear my, how my dad teaches the Bible. He just can't wait to show me off to his friends. I don't think they're going to be nearly as excited about it as he is. <laughs> but you guys understand what that's like. That's analogous to what we see with God in his creation and in redemption. The father loves his son and wants to create and redeem as if to say to his creation, look at my son's glory. Behold my son. And the son loves his father so much that he wants to create and redeem as if to say to his creation, look at my father's glory. Behold my father. And the Spirit loves the Father and Son so much that He wants to create and redeem as if to say to creation, look at the Father and the Son's glory. Behold your God. Further, they want to invite us to share in this fellowship and love and joy and glory between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They want to bring us into it. And so we see that recorded by Luke in chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. Look what he says. In that same hour, he, that being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He's rejoicing. This is this kind of exuberant exaltation. Rejoice in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so we see Jesus rejoicing in the Holy Spirit because he is seeing the Father's will to save his people and accomplish his plan being fulfilled by himself as the Son and through the application of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the context for this is the success of the mission of Jesus' disciples. Jesus has sent 70 of his disciples out preaching the gospel. And they went out to preach the gospel and to make known the fact to men that while we are now at enmity with God, one has come, his name is Jesus. And if you look to him, you can be reconciled to God and God will be reconciled to you. So look to Jesus, he's your hope. And if you look to him, you will finally have peace with God. You will go from being his enemy to his friend and that happens through the son. And so these men went out preaching that. 
And they went out proclaiming it. And they were healing, saying, listen, not only are we telling you this gospel, which gives you a relationship with the Father through the Son, which gives you peace with him, but we're healing you because we want you to get a taste of what's coming in that eternal kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved Son. And what's coming in it is no more sin and suffering and death, but only peace and joy forevermore with God. And so we want to give you a taste of that while we proclaim to you that Jesus is the only way to that. And they return from that mission, and they're jazzed because people believed. People are believing. They're successful. And they're super excited about their success. People believe. Listen, demons were subject to us. We cast out demons, and they went. That's pretty cool. You've got to admit that would be pretty cool. And so they come back rejoicing over that. And Jesus says, it's great that you're rejoicing over that because my Father has really done that work. That's happened through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's given to you by God. But do not think that that's your ultimate joy because it's not. There's an even greater joy. It isn't your success in your ministry. The even greater joy is that your names are written in heaven. Amen. No matter how many people are saved, no matter how big your church gets, no matter how many demons you cast out, no matter how many people you heal of cancer, no matter any of that, what matters more than anything else, what ought to give you the greatest joy is that your names are written in heaven. That the Father knows you and remembers you and is keeping you and loves you. That's the greatest joy. And in that same hour, as Jesus is saying these things, Jesus turns and rejoices with an even greater joy, a more exuberant joy. And he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, thanking the Father, mentioning the fact that it was only him as the Son who reveals the Father to anyone. In other words, Jesus is rejoicing in the Trinity and in the Trinitarian God's plan to come and save us. He's rejoicing that his disciples are having success in mission because what Jesus sees unfolding is the Father's plan to save people as he promised. And he's rejoicing in that. So Luke turns to Jesus' joy. Let me, let me ask you a question. Are you a sinner? Yes, is the answer. But are you a specific kind of sinner? Are you ready? The kind of sinner who has not looked to Jesus for salvation. The kind who thinks that maybe your good works will outweigh your bad. Or the kind who maybe thinks that, you know, I'm, I, I got all this together. You are a bunch of weak-minded Christians. I don't need any of this. I, I got this. Or maybe the kind of sinner who thinks, you know what, I, I am, but, but you don't know my sin. My sin is, is really deep. And, and I need to figure out a way to clean up my act before I come to church, before I look to Jesus. I don't, I don't know how God won't have anything to do with me given my life now. I better clean it up before I come. In, in every one of those cases, there's an assumption of reluctance on the part of God to save, isn't there? It's his joy to save you. His joy. God is not reluctant in saving you. It's his joy to do so. Maybe you're someone who has been saved. I, I, I guarantee you there are people in this room right now who have been saved, but you're always wondering if God is just waiting for you to mess it up with your sin so that he can withdraw his favor from you, so that somehow he is this God who's just out there waiting for you to blow it, so he can pull out the hammer and smack you with it. And you're assuming when you do that a reluctance in God and not joy in his salvation. The Lord doesn't save his people reluctantly. It's his joy to do this. Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's plan being fulfilled in saving his people. Jesus did this for the joy set before him. 
I spent more time on that last week. In the sermon I preached last week, I spent more time on it. I encourage you to go and listen to it if you haven't heard it. So with that said, there's one more aspect, really. I shared two aspects of this joy last week. But there's one more aspect of Jesus' joy in the mission to save men from every tribe and tongue and nation that I want you to see here today. It's the one I didn't get to. This is part two of last week's sermon. There's one, a- one more aspect of his joy, and there's one application of it that I want to give you. Okay? So one aspect of Jesus' joy we're going to see today, and one application that I want you to take with this. So it is going to apply to you. You ready? All right, here, here's, here's the first aspect. Jesus' joy is in pursuing the bride the Father has promised to him. Hear that? It's his joy to pursue the bride the Father's promised to him, and that bride comes from every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, where do I get all that from? Because I couldn't have gotten all from these verses. Look at verse 23 and 24. Then turning to his disciples... Or to the disciples, he said privately. Now, now, one of the questions that comes up for people is, why, why do he turn and do this privately? And part of that is because he was not yet ready for the messianic fervor that would surround his ministry because he was going to die. And so he doesn't go announcing these things publicly because there's all these ideas attached to what it means to be the Messiah. And the people it, it would get caught up in that. And is it time to lead the revolt against Rome? And Jesus isn't wanting to lead a revolt against Rome. Jesus is leading a revolt against Satan and sin and death. So he turns to his disciples privately and said, blessed are the eyes, and that word blessed um, can also be translated happy, are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Why are their eyes blessed? Their eyes are blessed because they're seeing something that others didn't see. What's he referring to? Does he mean that other people haven't been saved in the past? No. He's referring to the fact that there are many prophets and kings that desired to see what they see and didn't see it and to hear what they hear and didn't hear it. What's that talking about? It's talking about It's a way to sum up the whole Old Testament, isn't it? There were many prophets and kings who desired to see what you see and did not see it, hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, if you wanted to break down the Bible in the simplest form, here's how you do it. Old Testament promise. God makes all these promises. He makes them to prophets and kings. He makes them to priests. He makes them to people. They hear these promises. And they're looking forward to this day that this Messiah would come, that this Savior would come, that the Son of God, would come. They're looking forward to this day. They've heard these promises. And the New Testament, you would sum up as fulfillment. Everything that was promised has now come to fruition. It's become fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying to them is, everyone in the Old Testament was looking forward to my day. And they did not see it. What he means by that is they did not see it historically fulfilled. Because in another passage, for example, in John 8, Jesus is interacting and he says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And you say, well, Jesus, if Abraham rejoiced to see your day and he saw it and was glad, how can you say that those people in the Old Testament didn't see it? What he's talking about with Abraham is, Abraham was looking forward to the promise and he was trusting in the promise and he was finding joy in the promise that one day the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham would come. And he was trusting in that promise and rejoicing in it. He did not see its historical fulfillment because he was dead. He was dead for well over a thousand years. Dead. He wasn't mostly dead, kind of looking. He was dead, dead. Right? Right? And he's, look, he's not, so he's saying, that's what he means Jesus, when Jesus says that there. Is he's looking forward to this. But when he's talking here, he's talking about historical fulfillment. These people in the Old Testament never saw me physically walking on earth doing what I'm going to do. They didn't see it. They weren't around for it. They were looking forward to the promise of it. And the disciples are getting to see what the Father promised. The Father has always been on a mission. From the moment we fell into sin in the garden and were kicked out, 
the Father has been on a mission to bring us back to himself. He promised to send his son, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham and David, our Lord Jesus, to save men from every tribe and tongue and nation. He promised the Savior for all nations to our fathers at various times and in various ways through the prophets. That's what Hebrews 1 says. So let's look at some of those. Let's look at how we see this promise in every section of the Old Testament. And so you understand, as the Old Testament's generally broken up into, into parts, we talk about the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And we talk about the history, which has to do with, you know, Joshua and forward through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the wisdom literature and writings, which you know, the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and those would be caught up with, and, and the prophets, major and minor, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. So let's look at how this promise goes through all these major sections of Scripture. Look first at Genesis, because I'll show it to you in the first five books of the Old Testament. I'm just going to show it to you in one of the five. It'll make my point. I want you to see that this is the promise that goes throughout the whole Old Testament, that Jesus is now showing up. This is the promise that the kings and prophets of the Old Testament did not see fulfilled, but the disciples had the privilege, the blessing of seeing fulfilled in front of them. Genesis chapter 3. You guys are familiar with the fall. God creates man and woman. He says you can have anything in all of creation I've given you. You can eat any of the fruits, any of these trees, but you can't eat from that one tree. Don't eat from that fruit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan comes to them and says, listen, I know God's given you everything, but really he's stingy, isn't he? Because he's held back that one thing you want. Doesn't look good. He's a stingy God. Don't trust him. Did he really say? Don't really believe him. You know, you could be like him and he knows that. He doesn't want you to be. Eat the fruit. So they eat it. And God comes looking for them because that's what God does. He goes seeking his people. Adam and Eve go hiding. They recognize their sin and their shame, and they try to cover it up with fig leaves, and then they go hide in the bushes because they're afraid as God comes walking in the garden. And he comes looking for them. And when he finds them, he starts asking them what's happened. And, of course, the blame game begins because right after guilt and shame, blame shifting follows quickly thereafter, right? It's that woman you gave me. Accusing two people at once, both the woman, it's her fault, and you, you gave her to me. Right? And then the woman turns and goes, hey, it's, the, it's Satan. You guys have heard that one. It's the devil, right? Okay? He made me do it. So she goes, the devil made me do it is not new, right? It's been happening for millennia. And so she turns and blames him. Then God turns to Satan and he begins cursing Satan. And then he curses the man and the woman as well and all their posterity with them. But when he curses Satan, in the midst of the curse, he makes a promise. And the promise is key to everything else in the Bible. In fact, I would tell you that all of the rest of the Bible is a commentary on Genesis 3.15. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, you will strike him, and he dies from it, but he will crush your head in the process. So this seed of the woman is coming who will have victory over Satan. He will be struck in the process of having victory over Satan, but he will crush Satan and sin and death. And he's coming. And the promise gets narrowed down as you go to a chapter like Genesis 12. But he's coming to do this for who? For the Jews? No, the Jews aren't even mentioned yet. He's coming to do this for all mankind. He's coming for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's coming from the seed of the woman. But it gets narrowed in the promise to Abraham and his posterity. So look there at Genesis 12. The Lord comes to this man named Abram, this man who is a... um, At the time, basically a pagan. Abram's not out looking for God. God comes looking for him. Now the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, which Abram means exalted father. Later his name is changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, now here's the key, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just, Abram, Abraham, I'm going to set you apart and I'm setting you apart as a special nation, but there's a larger picture here. I am going to, through your seed, through your family, bless all the peoples of the earth. And he goes forward and narrows that so it's in the history. God is coming. He's sending this Messiah, this Savior, from the seed of the woman, from the seed of Abraham, who will bless all nations. Bless them all. Now we see it as well in the history or the historical books. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're not familiar with that, it's about, not quite um, midway into your Bible. It's before Psalms and Proverbs, Ezra, Nehemiah, etc. It's before the Kings and Chronicles. So maybe maybe it's a third or a quarter of the way through your Bible, depending on how many notes you have in your commentaries, right? But 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you look there, the Lord is talking to David. So he's made a promise to Abraham. He makes a promise to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, we read this. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this text is picked up in both Psalm 110 and then into the New Testament as a prophetic text dealing with the Messiah, that this Messiah is coming. It's also mentioned a bit, if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 22, as as David is singing this song of deliverance from the hand of Saul, he concludes with this statement in verse 50 and 51 when he says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praise to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. That's to his Messiah. To David and his offspring forever. See, there is this praise coming from the lips of Abraham because all nations will be blessed through his seed. And there is this praise coming from the lips of David because all nations are going to be blessed through his seed, his anointed, his Messiah. As God has promised from the time he made a promise to Satan, which the man and woman heard, that there would be one who comes. To the time he promised to Abraham and to David and further on in the wisdom literature, look at Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2. Look at the second Psalm if you would. You see again this promise In Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Hear that? This is again picked up through the New Testament. This Messiah is coming. This Messiah is coming. And the nations are his possession. All of them. Isaiah chapter 42. Let's see it in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 42. Guys, I could show you tons more. I just made some selections. Isaiah 42. See it one more time. That this promise goes through the whole Old Testament. Verse 1, Behold my servant, 
whom I uphold. This is speaking of the servant named Jesus, the suffering servant, the messianic servant, the one who's coming. This passage is later picked up in the Gospels with regard to him. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Now he's speaking to his son. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Hear that promise? I am the Lord and I will give you as a covenant to the nation. And when Jesus comes, he comes as that covenant, doesn't he? The new covenant. And as he is about to give his life the night before his death, what does he do? He breaks bread and he pours out wine and he hands it out to his disciples. He says, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Take and drink. This is my blood which is spilled for you. This blood is the blood of the new covenant which is given for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, my Father has given to me to you as a covenant, a promise, to relate, which is a relational promise, to make you mine. And not only are you going to be mine, disciples, but I will claim my people from every tribe and tongue and nation because I am a light and a covenant for all the peoples of the earth. And while he promised all this through the Old Testament prophets, all through the Old Testament he promises this, in these last days, in these last days he has revealed this Savior for all nations to us in his Son, Jesus. Jesus has come to fulfill all God's promises and the disciples were blessed to see him. All of history was waiting for the day that he would come. And the disciples were those who were positioned at a time in history where they got to see it. That's a blessing, isn't it? All of history hangs in the balance around his life. All of it. It was all created for him and through him and to him. All of it. It's all his. And the day he arrives is the day the disciples get to see. And the prophets and the kings desired to see it, and they desired to hear it, but the disciples are the ones seeing it and hearing it, and they're blessed because they are. The Old Testament, the saints desired to see him come. They desired to see him fulfill God's promises, but the disciples were getting to see it, and that's a tremendous blessing for them. And Jesus is rejoicing. He's rejoicing that they get that blessing. Here's the thing. We're also blessed to know him because he's revealed himself to us in his word, Old and New Testament. So why does Jesus receive so much joy in coming to save us? Because that's the center of Jesus' joy is, is coming to save us. He rejoices in the Father and the Holy Spirit in coming to save us. Why? Well, the best analogy that I can use to help you understand Jesus' joy is the fact that Jesus' church is also called his bride. You guys familiar with Ephesians 5? We often hear it read at weddings, right? I read it at pretty much every wedding I do. And there's this point at which it talks about wives submit to your husbands. The husband is the head of wife as Christ is the head of the church, etc. And then it goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, his bride, giving his very life for her so that he might what? Washing her daily with the words, he might present her holy and pure, spotless before God, right? The church is his bride, whom he's given his very life for. Those who are looking to Jesus in faith are his bride. So, so think of the picture here. The Father 
the Son and the Holy Spirit have an eternally loving relationship with one another. The Father loves the Son and wants to show off the glory of his Son. Further, the Father wants to share his joy in the Son with others. So the Father plans to give the Son a gift, a bride, a people for his own possession from every tribe and tongue and nation. And the Son loves the Father and his bride. And he wants to share the glory and joy he has in the Father with his bride. So the Son pursues his bride and gives life to her. Why? So that he might present his bride to his Father in perfection. You know how grooms are with their brides, right? You guys, you guys go to weddings. When you go, stop looking at the bride the whole time when she walks down the aisle and take the time out to look at the groom. It's the best part. The bride walking down the aisle is not the best part. Sorry, ladies. You look glorious and beautiful, better than you normally look. But <laughs> it's a fact. We all know it, right? <laughs> okay. As you walk down the aisle. But take the time to look at the husband when that happens. Because when, when she's walking down, you can just see the husband's bursting with joy. It's, just, just can't, it's like, there's my bride, right? I remember when, I've, I've told you guys, I remember when my wedding happened and, and Teresa was walking down the aisle. I just wanted to shout out, look at her. Can you believe she's with me? She's mine. Look at my bride. Look, isn't she glorious? Isn't she beautiful? I just wanted to shout, but I couldn't. I had to stand there with proper decorum, right, and just kind of smile. But I wanted to. And here's the analogy of what's happening on the grand eternal stage. As the father rejoices in giving his son a bride, and the son rejoices in saving his bride and presenting her to his father. It's as if the son is saying, Father, look at my bride. Look at her. When a son comes home to share this woman he loves with his father and say, A father he loves, Father, look at my bride. Isn't she glorious? And the father saying to the son, son, look at the bride I gave you. And they're both saying to us, look at, look at your husband. Look at your father. How, how eternally grateful ought you to be? How much ought that have stirred joy into you? It's, you can hear the joy of Jesus, by the way. You can hear the joy of Jesus as he sings over his bride, the church. One of the places where he sings over his bride, the church, is in Isaiah 62. So I want you to turn there. I want you to see Jesus. Now, this is, I realize, pre-incarnate son of God, okay? There's a second person of the Trinity singing over his son. Jesus hasn't been born yet. But look at Isaiah 62. As he sings over his bride, you can hear his joy. In verse 1, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hear this? You'll no longer be called forsaken. You'll now be having a new name. My delight is in her. And you see Jesus' delight in saving his bride. His delight is in her. So the question is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Are you part of his bride? Are you looking to Jesus in faith? Are you trusting him? Or are you too smug and self-satisfied to bend the knee? Believer, did you know 
that God's mission throughout history was to save you in his son? To gather others from every tribe and tongue and nation? That's ethne, people groups. Not geopolitical borders, but people groups. Did you know that all of human events are organized throughout history to accomplish this end? That Jesus will bring many sons to glory so that we will experience joy in knowing and being known by an extravagantly loving God. All of history is for that reason. That reason. All of it. And that leads to my one application today. You ready? One application point. Our joy, our joy now, believers, is in participating in Jesus' joyous mission to see God's people enter the joy of eternal fellowship with him. Look with me at 1 John. Understand this fellowship. Look with me at 1 John chapter 1. John writes this letter, likely dealing with various errors, um, one of which you read at, right at the beginning, which is sort of maybe an incipient Gnosticism. If you don't know what incipient Gnosticism is, it's sort of a docetism or a, a denial of, of the, the flesh. This idea that the flesh is bad and everything's spirit that's good and everything that's flesh is bad. And he sort of responded to this saying, look, Jesus just didn't appear like a docetist would tell you. He just didn't appear to be a man who had body and flesh, blood and right? He really was a man. We touched him and saw him. And okay, so he starts off there, but he drives to a bigger point. That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, John, 1 John 1, 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. And what's interesting, Jesus has called the eternal life here, isn't he? Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, here's, here's the reason. Why are we proclaiming to you about Jesus, what we've seen and heard about him? He is the one who is eternal life. And why are we proclaiming him to you? So that... You too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, why don't you have fellowship with us? Because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Can there be a greater privilege than that than to be in fellowship with the Father and the Son? To be in fellowship with the Holy Trinity? To share their love and glory and joy. To have that kind of relationship with them. Can there be a greater privilege? And we want you to be at fellowship with us because our fellowship is with them. Our fellowship is with the Lord. And so if you're in fellowship with us, then you're in fellowship with him as well. And we want you to have that. That's why we proclaim to you the gospel. And look what he goes on and says. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, here's a question. You find out that you're in fellowship with Trinity. In fellowship with Trinity. That you have joy. You're going to share this joy forever, eternally increasing in that joy. That you're going to experience the love of the Father, that as the Father's loved the Son, so the Father loves you. You hear that kind of thing, and you think, why isn't my joy already complete? Why does it need to be made more complete? Because there's a point that's being driven out here, and I want you to catch it. It's Jesus' joy to save people, and the Father rejoices in heaven when people are saved, doesn't he? Luke 15, he rejoices. There's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents right? We think that's angels. Why? It doesn't say anything about angels. Why is it not the Father rejoicing? It is the Father rejoicing. The Father rejoices in heaven people are saved. And it then becomes our joy to bring the same salvation to other people. That's why it makes our joy complete. Because we become like God. 
we have this incredible joy in him. But when we're in fellowship with him and his spirit indwells us and changes us and gives us new life, and we know the salvation we have, we start to become like him, and our love starts to become outgoing like his is. I don't mean personality outgoing. You follow me on this? I mean our love is, starts to be directed toward him and toward other people. And nothing gives us more joy than seeing other people share in the same love of God that we are sharing in. Nothing. And so that's why it makes our joy complete, because we're becoming like him. We're not only those who are privileged to know God and thus share and rejoice in sharing his glory, but we are those who are privileged to be sent out on his mission to bring others to faith in him also. We receive an invitation to share the joyous fellowship of the Trinity and get to see our joy made complete by sharing it with others. That's the story of the BM people. I've mentioned it. I'm going to mention it real briefly. We've been talking about the BM people. This is little island called BM off off the country of Papua New Guinea. It's about six to seven hours by boat. It's a people group that lives on a tiny volcano. It's an active volcano, this island. There's about 2,000 tribal people who live there. These people are backwards tribal people. Backwards tribal. You guys follow me on that, okay? The gospel has never been there. They don't know about Jesus. And some missionaries, one named Brandon Buser, his wife Rachel, and some others, a team of them, went to the BM people. And they lived there, they've lived there for about five years now, I believe. And they moved in there to learn the language and the culture and essentially become part of the tribe. They li- moved in there really to some degree for maybe a 20-year stretch. And they said, we want to make Jesus known to these people. And so they lived among them, and they finally got to the point where they knew the language and culture well enough that they could start sharing the gospel. And they started in Genesis 1. In the last almost three months, they have every day, multiple hours a day, taught these tribal people about the Lord. And we've been praying for them, and we put their pictures back there for you to pray for all the members of the tribe. And on Friday, Thursday night, really our time, Friday theirs, they they shared the gospel for the first time. They finally got to the cross and resurrection. The people were getting the fact that they needed a savior as they went through the whole story. And when they finally got to that point, like, we need a savior. And Jesus must be the only way. He's the road man. He'll show us the road. And they didn't yet know that he is the road. And so they finally on Friday shared the cross and the resurrection. And they said, he's the way. He's paid for your sins. You're set free. You're forgiven for everything you've ever done in him. He did it. You didn't do anything. He came. They were mortified that people would kill Jesus. And then they started to understand why. And then they started to rejoice. And one of the men, they said, step. They're stunned and said, really? Really? They said it was like he, people started looking at him like crazy. He was completely devastated by the fact that God would forgive him his sin through the death of Jesus. God did that for me? And what happened to the people immediately as that church was born on Friday? As the gospel took root in a new people group for the first time in the history of the world? as the promise of the Father went forth, bringing great rejoicing, I'm sure, in heaven, great joy in the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father, great joy among the missionaries. What happened is the new believers in BM, upon receiving the gospel for the first time, now mind you, they haven't heard about Acts. They haven't heard about the Great Commission. They haven't heard about taking this to other places. For the first time, they responded. They hear the gospel. They believe. They're blown away by the gospel. And they start planning together. And they tell the missionaries their plan. You want to hear it? Here's an account of it. We've, this is their quote. We've talked about it already. We're going to be going to the next islands to share this talk. So you know that's 15 miles in open ocean in a canoe. We'll row in our canoes if we have to. They need to hear. They don't understand this talk at all. None of us did. We've been lied to this whole time. Man, those folks who lied to us are going to carry big pay for their behavior, right? 
But us, <laughs> but us, we need to get this talk to others now. That's their response. Who around you doesn't know Jesus? Who are you, what are you doing really to engage them with the gospel? Are you praying for them? Have you invited them to church? Ever asked them to your grace group? Ever had them over for dinner or introduced them to other Christian friends? Have you asked them how you could even pray for them? Are you living in such a way that your love is outgoing and outward looking like God's love for you? Do you show this love to others? Do you have other unbelieving friends who you love well? How engaged are you in making Jesus known around the world? See, we started Radius International, which is, we were a part of the team that started that, which is an um, organization that exists to train people, 12 months of training, to go and make Jesus known among tribes and tongues and nations who've never heard of him. Most of those people are in training now to go to Muslim nations. And they're going to go to people and tell them about Jesus at potentially the cost of their own lives. And, and here's the question. Maybe, or maybe the point, maybe you should go. Have you ever considered? Maybe I should go and get trained to do that. Maybe I should participate in sending those people. I ought to be praying for them. See, I can't make you want to know, make Jesus known. You know that? You either recognize how incredible your salvation is and want to make Jesus known, or you don't. It's the gospel that moves you. The grace of God moves you, and with an end in mind. And John says the apostles were moved by their fellowship with the Father and Son. That's what they were moved by. We ought to be as well. It ought to move us. Let's pray that it does. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you, that you would work in us in such a way that we would see how gloriously good you've been to us throughout history. That we would understand what a privilege it is to be in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we would rejoice that our names are written in heaven. That we would rejoice that we get to share in your glory, that we are loved as you love the Son. That we get to participate in the eternal increase of joy with you. Father, that, that we get to know you and that we're known by you. Pray that you'd move in us in such a way that we would have great joy in seeing your saving plan go throughout the world as your son Jesus did. That we would be like him in this. That our love would be outgoing as well. That we would find, find great joy in making your son known where he is not. Seeing our friends saved. In inviting them into the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we share as a privilege of knowing you. It's a gift of your hand. There's nothing that comes from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.